I've just come back from the New Forest. I've been, uh, over the last sort of 24 hours, I've been preaching about four hours um, and driving about seven, and I'm pretty tired, I'm afraid. Uh, but the Holy Spirit is powerful, and the Lord is good, and he is our strength. And so we're going to look at this stuff together. Uh, it's a great book to get into. We're going to be doing the book of Job just in four installments. Uh, I'm only really doing one evening once a month in Job. So it's going to stretch us, hope, probably through the crisis, actually. And maybe it will be particularly useful in that. Uh, that's not how I intended it. I planned to do this last year at this particular point. So uh, the Lord is overruling, and I think we will be blessed. I pray that we will. Let's pray that now, shall we, before we open up. Father, we do thank you that you have given us your word and that it is a living word. We thank you that this is not a dead book in front of us, but it is a relevant book. And as we even look at our world today and engage with your word, we will see things that will help us, that will help us to understand what's going on around us, that will help us to know how we should live in the light of it and where our trust should be. And so we pray tonight, Lord, please speak to us. Help us to understand as we wrestle with the truths of your word and help us to submit to those words that we might be blessed. Amen. Well, I'm going to read to you just from an article I read from Evangelicals Now a little while back as an introduction here. It talks about some um, American missionaries called Mark and Gladys Bliss. We read uh, that their faith in the Lord had already been tested and proved in Liberia, where they had looked after lepers. Mark and Gladys arrived in Tehran in 1965 with their two young children, Karen and Debbie. Their son, Mark Jr., was born in Iran. Mark's assignment was to assist in establishing a Bible school in Tehran. And he was always much more than just an administrator in this job, described by others as the wise older brother, the quietly spoken counsellor, the unflappable man of prayer, a crucial member of the team of gifted men and women who were going to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to their generation of Iranians. Well, on October the 24th, 1969, the family were going to attend a pastor's conference and the plan was then the next day to travel with another family to Gorgan to see how a new church he was building was getting along. The day after the conference, that family, so husband Hake and his wife and their infant son, along with the Bliss family, started the six-hour drive in their Volvo over the winding, narrow, two-lane roads to Gorgan. And they hoped to arrive there before night fell. On the way, they came to a village of about 10,000 people, where a few months earlier, Mark and Hake had been arrested for evangelism. And in typical style, the men stopped, and they had an impassioned time of prayer for the salvation of that village. And it went on for longer than they planned, so because of their praying, some of their journey would now be at night. Unknown to their families, that prayer meeting would change their lives forever. Mark got back into the driving seat with his daughters Karen, 13, and Debbie, 11, sharing the front seat. In the back was his wife, his three-year-old son Mark, Haik, his wife Takush, and their six-month-old baby Joseph. 
Energised by the prayer meeting and fully alert, Mark drove on, looking forward to seeing the new church building in Gorgan. Night fell. He drove more cautiously, though the strong lights of the Volvo gave him a clear view of the road ahead. Then suddenly he was blinded momentarily when an oncoming vehicle did not dip its lights and the Volvo ploughed into the back of a tractor trailer. It was parked half on the road and half on the roadside. There were no lights on the tractor. The impact was devastating. Though some were seriously injured, all the adults survived, but every, every one of the children, Karen, Debbie, Mark and Joseph, died. Here was a family, get, get the story. This is a true story, isn't it? Here's a family of believers, Christians who've made a sacrifice. They're devoted to serving God and serving and growing his church in a foreign country. They've gone bravely to go to a tough place like Iran to carry on that work. And when tragedy hits that family, it's in the line of duty, do you see? Had Mark been less diligent in prayer for the lost that day, had he cut short a prayer meeting, maybe the accident would never have taken place. Shocking, isn't it? What do we make of it? What was going on when that happened? Was God having an off day somehow? Was he not paying attention? Was he, was he simply unable to intervene in what happened that day? Couldn't he have done something to avert the disaster? Well, those are questions that come into many minds, don't they? Into our minds, I guess. How, as Christian believers, do we rationalise that kind of devastating, tragic loss when we see it? I mean, think about it. There's plenty of wicked people in the world, aren't there? Why couldn't that accident have happened to one of them instead? You know, a really bad person. If God's all-powerful and God is in control, why, doesn't, why isn't it the rapist who, who accidentally shoots themself? You know, why doesn't that happen to people like that? Or, or the mugger getting hit by a bus trying to mug someone. Why doesn't that happen? Why does this stuff happen even like to the children of missionaries out there? Why don't they get an automatic exemption from all kinds of accidental harm? What does God have to say for himself? And I think this is relevant, isn't it? I guess in the weeks ahead, we, we might well lose loved ones to this, this flu-like virus. And we mustn't, we know it's not true, isn't it? Do we expect that because people are believers, that somehow they will get a free pass? They'll be exempt from it. Do we think that will happen to us? We won't lose loved ones because we're God's people. And somehow that makes, it gives us a free pass. This, this whole thing becomes a strong argument, doesn't it, against the existence of God, the power of God, the goodness of God. And that's how people will use it. What does the Bible have to say in defense of the suffering of the righteous? Well, actually, lots. And that's why we're doing this series and listen, I don't mean to say this flippantly, but it's actually quite straightforward to offer a coherent theological defense for why there is suffering in the world and also why suffering happens to God's people. 
But, but that would leave it all academic if I did that. I could do that in probably five minutes. It would all be academic. And an academic answer to suffering is actually of limited use, really, out there in the world. It's not practically useful. One writer put it this way. Listen, he says, there are two ways to face these questions. We may ask them as armchair questions, or we may ask them as wheelchair questions. We ask them as armchair questions if we ourselves are remote from suffering. And it's all theoretical. We grapple with God with wheelchair questions when we do not hold this terror cheap, when we ourselves are those and those that we love are the ones suffering. Well, the book of Job faces head-on the wheelchair questions. That's why it's such a tough read and why it's so helpful to us. And we as the readers, and we just did it now, didn't we? We are allowed to peek behind the scenes in those first couple of chapters we read so that we can quickly grasp actually something of the academic answers, the theory. We've got the theory now. But Job is a book of 42 chapters. What's in the rest of them? In the rest of those chapters, they are chapters full of anger and frustration, tormented, honest questions, groans of despair, because that's the reality of suffering. There is nothing twee or trite about the way that the book of Job deals with the issue of suffering in our world. One author writing about this book remarks, it knows what people say behind closed doors and in whispers. And it knows what we say in our tears. It is not merely an academic book. If we listen to it with any care, it will touch, trouble, and unsettle us at a deep level. So be prepared for that. Job's a long book. And it's a long book largely, I think, because there aren't any short answers to suffering, really. Not helpful ones. Having said that, we're going to be skating over it. Uh, I'm not going to try and get into every single chapter of this book. We're going to deal with its major themes and, and see what it says in broad strokes to help us. And we're going to do it just in these four parts. Uh, and perhaps that's not ideal. Maybe we will dip into more of it at a later date. But neither do I want to spend 24 years preaching through the book like the Puritan Joseph Carroll did, who actually, I think, started with a sizable church and ended with an empty one 24 years later. Just him and the cat, I think it was. But this book, this deep and soul-searching resource that's right in the heart of God's word, right in the middle there, is the place, I believe, to mine for treasure and for wisdom if you're asking those wheelchair questions. This book is here for you to read it, do that, it's here, along with all of the rest of Scripture, to teach, to rebuke, to correct, to train us in righteousness. Why? So that we will be thoroughly equipped to follow Jesus, to do the works he's called us to do, and to do those even in the darkest place. I believe this, the, grappling with this it makes us so much more useful in helping others. So we're going to get straight into it now, that being the introduction. And let me introduce you tonight to Job, uh, the man and we're going to look just at the person, Job. We're going to look at the plot of the book. And we're going to look at the plight. 
There you go, the person, the plot, the plight. I'm not even going to follow those points, but they're there for you. Let's look at the, let's look at the person. Let me introduce you to Job then, and we'll look at uh, Job chapter 1, verse 1. We read, in the land of us, because it's a real man, okay? This is not fictional. In the land of us, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. So Job, from the word go, he is introduced to us as a stand-up guy. He's a good man, blameless and upright. Wouldn't you love to have that as your epitaph, that enshrined in scripture about you as a summary of your life? Blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Blameless doesn't mean morally without sin. That's not what it means. That would actually be impossible because we're sinful from birth, aren't we? But the word there, blameless, in this book, the Hebrew word carries the idea of having integrity and completeness. He's a complete man. Uh, You see, Job is complete and has integrity because of what else it says about him there. He feared the Lord. That's a really important phrase. And that doesn't mean, to fear the Lord doesn't mean to be, you know, when you think about God, to be literally sort of filled with dread at the very thought of God. It means, and please listen to this, to fear of the Lord, which is an important theme in the book of Job, it, it means that as far as Job was concerned, the only opinion that really mattered in this life, at the end of the day, It's not anyone around him, any of the voices around him, but only really what God thought. That's what the fear of the Lord means. It means I don't fear man, I fear fear the Lord. Do you see the the contrast? I'm I'm not giving in to the fear of man, the peer pressure around me. I fear the Lord. That's the one that I know is looking at me. And so he wasn't going to compromise or to bow to pressure from anyone. And that characterises Job in the background of the story. That's who he is. That's how he's established. If there was a pressure to bow, a pressure from the outside, to become like the sinful, corrupt generation around him, perhaps, you could count on Job that he was going to stand his feet down. He's going to say, I'm following God instead. That's the character of Job. Integrity, we're told. He had integrity. Like a stick of rock, anywhere you cut through Job, you would find the words, the fear of the Lord, just written through him. It's just in everything about him. That's the point. And his blameless heart results in upright conduct. That's how he behaves. It permeates through, doesn't it? The fear of the Lord meant that he, he turned away from evil, we're told. He turns away, shuns it. He almost fears evil because, because he loves the Lord and fears the Lord. You find an example of that in chapter 31, verse 1. Maybe you know these words, where he says, he's talking to his friends, he says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. You, know, you can imagine Job, he's just nailed this down. That's it, it's covenant, it's rock solid. I will not look with lust at a girl. Quite a, quite a thing, isn't it? Job had learned the wisdom of living his life under the knowing gaze of his creator in every aspect of his life. He knew that everything he did in his life 
was to be performed, and to be performed with utmost integrity to an audience, but that audience was an audience of one, and that was the only one that mattered to him. Now, well, what, can you say that about your life? Uh, and I think we need to get this, because, because he's so exemplary, Job. And that's really important as we look at what happens to him. This is not a man with any flaws or faults. You've got to, that's got to be the drumbeat in the back of your head as you go through all of the rest of the book and all the accusations that are made against him and all the aspersions that are cast against him. And I want to rub it in because I think the writer of the book of Job wants you to get it. This is not some dubious, nominal sort of believer. This is, in fact, the real deal, right from page one. This is the kind of guy that, that even God boasts about. We just heard that, didn't we, in, in the bit we just read. Verse 8 there. Have you considered my servant Job? He says it twice, actually, doesn't he? Every time Satan comes into his presence. Hey, mate, have you considered my servant Job? It's God's boast. And it's really important to rest of the plot line. You get that. Because when suffering comes into Job's life, here's the point. It has nothing to do with God punishing his sin. No matter what anyone else is saying in the book, it has nothing to do with that. The narrator says it in verse, verse 1 of chapter 1. And then God says it in verse 8. And then God repeats it in chapter 2, verse 3. Yeah? And not only is Job a blameless and upright man, he's also staggeringly wealthy. Let's paint a portrait of him. Uh, you can see it. In, uh, in chapter 1 there, verses 2 to 3, you get a little sort of resume. There he is. He's got 10 kids. He's got thousands of sheep. Uh, he's got camels. He's got oxen. And he's got an extensive sort of property portfolio going on. And all the staff that go with it, all these people reporting to him. And in verse 4, we read that the family are constantly feasting and celebrating. That's quite a, quite a wealthy sort of lifestyle, isn't it? They're in each other's homes. And verse 5, we also read that Job is a loving, caring father. He's concerned for his children's, not just you know, looking after them, but spiritually and morally what's going on with them. There he is, up every morning, praying for them, offering sacrifices, just in case they've done something stupid. And there he is, interceding for them before God, a good father. And so well might the narrator sum him up in verse 3. The greatest man among all the people of the East. He's a, he's a superstar, isn't he? He's genuine. He's an authentic God follower. There's nothing fake or fair weather. It's not just talk. It's not just religion and emptiness. He's an example for us to imitate. And as such, actually... He becomes a powerful picture and pointer forwards as we anticipate Jesus. You'll see characteristics of Jesus. Blameless, an innocent sufferer, sacrificing for the sins of others, interceding for them. It's a God character, isn't it? Pointing us to Christ. And as the book opens, all is sunny and bountiful. We've just been told about this picturesque scene, the villa, the children, the cattle. Now we get into the plot. In verses 6 to 11, we are allowed to take a peek into the heavenly courtroom. 
we get a chance to eavesdrop on a little conversation going up in the throne room of God, between God and Satan. Uh, Look at it with me from verse 7. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming the earth and going back and forth in it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything that he has? You've blessed the work of his hands, that his flocks and his herds spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand, strike everything he has. Surely he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then. Everything he has is in your hands. But on a man do not lay a finger. Really interesting scene, isn't it? The name Satan means accuser. We've just been told the accuser has come in to heaven. And true to his name, he's been out and about in the earth looking for those so-called God worshippers, God followers, and any of them that can be accused of something, accused of fakery. Taking a look at Job lately, asks God. I mean, it seems to me what you've got there is an absolutely genuine God worshipper, Satan. Have you considered him? Have you looked at him? And true to form, Satan tries to put the accusation at God. Of course, Job worships you. You've put a protective fence around Job, haven't you, God? You shield him from everything bad and you bless and you prosper everything he does. Of course, Job worships you. You've you've paid him. (laughs) You know, he's on your payroll. Of course he worships you. This is Satan's thesis, okay, as best I can put it at this point. He's basically saying, God, you're you're actually, this is the accusation, you're actually a rubbish ruler. (laughs) And that's why no human being in their right mind would ever worship you unless you pay them to do it. That's why people worship you, God. They worship you because you pay them. There's nothing intrinsically worshipable about you. Take away the good life, the wealth, the cattle, the homes, the children, the friends, and people wouldn't wouldn't care less about you, actually. There's nothing about you that they would want to worship. Let them suffer and you'll soon see the the reality in the heart of man. So there's a lot at stake, can you see? It's a big stakes game between God and Satan. Is there anything intrinsically just about God that that you would want to worship him for? Would you worship God just for being God? Or will human beings only ever relate to God like some kind of celestial vending machine in the heavens? You shove in some worship, you be a good boy, and then you reach for the goods that drop out the bottom. It's like a sort of a sausage factory. Hence, if nothing comes out, what are you going to do? Well, you're, you're not going to, you're not, you know, you're going to, you're not, you're not putting, you're not going to be bothered with it, are you? You're just going to give the machine a kick, if anything. That's the deal with the book of Job. That's what's going on behind the scenes, and we, we get a little peek at it, so we can see what the real plot is here. Job is the test case to prove that God is worthy of worship just because he is who he is, because he's, he's glorious. And for no other reason. There doesn't need to be any other reason to worship God. 
that people will keep trusting him even if they are stripped of everything. And that will really glorify God. That God is, in and of himself, of such value, of such a treasure, that you really will put up with... It will be to you worth it to lose everything else in the world if you can just have him. That's the the case being proven. It's quite similar to some of the parables Jesus told, isn't it? Think of the parable of the, the merchant and the pearls. Or the man who finds treasure in a field. It's exactly the same thing. So let's move on uh, to the plight. In the first barrage, in the worst day that anyone has ever had in the history of bad days, verse 4, messengers, uh, sorry, not verse 4, four messengers arrive in verses 13 to 19 there, if you look. And it's like they come rapid fire, one after the other after the other. In fact, that's the point that's made, isn't it? While he's still speaking, the next one comes. And they report to Job that he has lost everything. You know, Job's been allowed access to everything, and boy, has he gone for it. He's just stripped it bare, hasn't he? His cattle, his camels, his sheep, and then the worst of all blows, surely, to a loving, devoted father. His children, all of them. The house has come down on them. And Job mourns, and he tears his robe, shaves his head. What fruit will this devastation, here's the first test, what's the fruit that it will produce deep down in this man's soul? What will come forth? Will Job curse God like Satan said? Look at verse 20. At this, as the last messenger stopped speaking, He got up, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, then he fell to the ground in worship. Verse 21, he says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Wow! With a broken heart and yet with staggering faith, this first round of affliction, far from inciting Job to curse God, only drives Job to the arms of God and on his knees before him. And then we're back in God's courtroom again in chapter 2. You think the worst of it's over. It's not. Well, perhaps it is. Chapter 2, as Satan enters, you can almost see, and this is a bit of light sort of relief, I suppose, you can almost see God sitting on his throne and talking about God. That's my boy down there. Look at it. Did you see my boy Job? He's maintaining his integrity despite everything you've done to him, Satan. That, my little man, is a true worshipper. He's worshipping me for nothing other than just because I am glorious. Well, Satan's getting worked up now. Skin for skin, he says. It would be a different story if you let me take his health. Let me actually afflict the man. Let's turn, let's turn the heat up a bit and put him through some physical pain. And okay, says God, do your worst. You want to raise the stakes? I'll see you, but no killing him. And so we read Job is covered from head to toe with painful festering sores. What a description. And that must have been pretty grotesque, mustn't it? He describes it in chapter 30. Like, uh, like this, on verse 30 of chapter 30, he says, My skin grows black and peels. My body burns with fever. 
Imagine what he looks like. But we next see Job in chapter 2, verse 8. Look at him. He's sitting at the city dump. He's sitting in the place, actually, the kind of place Jesus uses as a description for hell. That's where he's sitting. Where there's constantly fires going, burning the rubbish and the waste from the town. And there he squats in a pile of ashes and filth. And he's picking up this piece of broken pottery. And that's the only relief he can get. He's just scraping the pus from his body. He's terribly alone. Suffering in isolation. And his only brief interruption that he gets, did you see it, is as if Satan is using her for one last ditch attempt. His wife pays him a visit and encourages him to curse God and have done with it. But Job rebukes her. He maintains his integrity. Incredible. And so in the grand scheme, at this point in the book, barely through chapter 2, the wager is won. The wager, the, the bet has been won. Job proves that God can still be worshipped on the ash heap in life. But the book does not end there, you see. This is the interesting thing. What follows is 40 chapters of poetry, actually. Poetry that engages the heart and the mind together in searching out the mysteries of human suffering and walking with Job through them. All the arguments back and forth. See, if all we did was to jump, which actually some preaching series do, actually, is to jump from chapter 2 and then land up in chapter 42, you know, right at the end of the book, and get some sort of conclusion, we would be left with Super Job, wouldn't we? Super Job, which we just can't even touch. Well, I don't know about you, but if you're, are you sitting there thinking, what if that happened to me? Would you be Super Job? There's the unique Iron Man of suffering right there. Our understanding of suffering from Job would be one of unemotional, unmoved stoicism. A sort of just grin and bear it and get on with it and trust God. Job might well, you know, stand up on his ash heap and shout out, you know, come on, Satan, is that all you've got? I can take more. It's that sort of thing. And that's why I want us to go on briefly into, just, into chapter 2, just briefly tonight, and just have a quick look, just a skim down chapter 3 and see what's going on underneath all of this. What's actually happening? So if you'll bear with me a few more minutes, let's just look at this. See, outwardly... Job proclaims by faith, doesn't he? The Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? It's very logical, isn't it? But inwardly, Job is in a very dark place. I want you to get to see it a little bit before we finish tonight. Because this is important. I think that often when we suffer, we somehow believe that we must show no weakness... I know there's a generation, some of my parents' generation, uh, uh, Christians in, in their generation, they seem to believe this, that it's somehow sinful to be downcast or show weakness or to be doubting or depressed about things, to groan, to bring complaints to God. We think that somehow we must be able to just snap out of it and sing a happy song. But it's not so with Job. Take a quick look at chapter 3, verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Or verse 11, look at what he's saying. Why did I not perish at birth 
and die as I came out of the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? Now I'll be lying in peace, he says. I'll be asleep and at rest. He's longing for death to come as he goes into verse 21, look. Verse 22, he's got no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. He's asking all of those questions, do you see? Why was I born? Why did I have to survive? Why can't I just die already? He wants to cease from the trouble of this world. And the grave looks inviting. The grave looks like peace to him. And life looks like turmoil. We need to listen to this. You see, Job is a godly man. He's a believer of the highest caliber. We've seen that, haven't we, at the beginning of the book. This is a man approved by God. And he suffers as such. That's how he's suffering. And I guess what Job is teaching us here is that, is that Christians do go through very dark times. And how we respond to suffering in those times is very important. But to, to respond with sadness... To respond with a certain kind of despair is normal, is normal. That's actually how we're made. To be otherwise would be kind of weird, slightly alien and robot-like. We were designed as human beings with a whole spectrum of emotions and feelings. And at times like Job, we need to vent those feelings to God and maybe to others. So before we finish tonight, I want to apply some of this stuff to us. Just some really simple ones, just from the chapters that we've looked at so far. Because we're going to go on a very interesting and emotional journey as we dip into Job. But it, let me just draw together some of the nuts and bolts here, what we can learn about Job's case in just this introduction. A few points for you. First, obviously, big point, God's people are not exempt from suffering, and neither should we expect to be. There's a false gospel out there, isn't there, that preaches that if you are a Christian, then you should be financially rich, perfectly healthy, and physically beautiful. And if you're not, well, then you're, you're probably lacking faith somehow. And in refuting that, let me just simply leave the case there of just saying to you, try preaching that to Job on the ash heap. Try telling him that. It's a load of rubbish, isn't it? Suffering is far more complicated than that. Interesting, someone just commented to me this weekend is that in America, a number of the prosperity churches have actually shut the doors because of the virus. <laughs> Slightly ironic. Let that one sink in for a second. Secondly, second lesson to just draw from this. God finds Job blameless, even though Satan does not, and Satan wants to accuse him. And likewise, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. We do not suffer in this life because God is against us. If you have started to believe that, it's nonsense. It cannot be true. He gave his son for you. Yet Satan is still roaming around looking for people to accuse before God. To try and accuse us of that. Listen to Peter's advice to young Christians. Tiago's going to get to this soon. It's in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says this, Be self-controlled and alert, just like Job. 
Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Doesn't that just sound exactly like what we heard in Job? Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout all the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. It's like a mini version of Job, isn't it? Don't you think Peter's just done his quiet time in Job? It's like, to one extent or another, Job is, Peter's saying, kind of like the normal pattern. I mean, maybe not as extreme, but the normal pattern. That's the normal pattern of life for the believer. Why do you expect elsewise? Third lesson, God is sovereign over all things. I mean, it's, it's shockingly clear in this story, isn't it? Despite all the things that have happened to Job, God is sovereign. You see it especially in the realm of suffering. But in every detail of the story so far, God has been this absolute ruler. He presides in his court in the heavens. And angels come and present themselves before him. You know, they humble themselves before him. Satan cannot touch God's people without explicit permission. It's don't even lay a finger. Don't, don't go near him with your finger, Satan. God sets the limits. Satan can go no further. It's not an option for him to go further. And in the secret ways of his sovereignty, God always uses the suffering as people to do them good. And I don't understand that. I don't always see that. But it's true. According to Peter, he does us good by turning us to him in our sufferings and growing our faith. Listen to what he says. We did, Peter, uh, Tiago read this to us only a few weeks back in 1 Peter chapter 1. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's the truth. I just want you to see the truth. And fourth thing, and I want to finish with this one. I think you get straight away at the beginning of the book of Job. Is, is this. It's just the point. It's okay to cry. I mean, each of us are different. We respond to things differently. But the key here is, it's, and I, I remember this being a shock to me reading through the book of Job. And it dawning on me. It's okay to vent your emotions. You know, we're British and, and, we, and we struggle with that enough just being British. But then, you know, if we're conservative evangelicals as well, it's just, it's so hard, isn't it? It's okay as well to ask God the why questions, isn't it? What does Jesus say from the cross? Why have you forsaken me? He's asking the why questions, isn't he? Why was I born, says Job. He's not held guilty for asking that question. That, that by the way, is very different from, I wish I was dead. Job doesn't want to end his own life. He doesn't go there, does he? He says things like, you know, why wouldn't, wouldn't it have just been better if I'd never started life, if I died at birth? Why are you keeping here when death would put me at peace? That's his thinking. But he, he's unashamed to cry those things out before God, to vent his emotion. Why questions are part of grieving. That's important for us to remember that. 
And it's all fine and good to ask them. But listen, as long as we don't expect that God owes us a response, he doesn't. But it is okay to ask. It is okay to vent that emotion. And this itself points us to Jesus, doesn't it? Let me remind you in finishing that Jesus himself suffered massively. Massively. He was in a very dark place just before his crucifixion. And as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and said to Peter and James and John, he says to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That's a dark place to be, isn't it? We see him pleading with his father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. But his mission was to bring sinful, wicked men and women back into relationship with their creator. And so he had to carry that cross. He had to go through that suffering. He had to be punished instead of us. And because he hung on that cross, suffering, even though he was blameless, just like Job, and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We have someone who can sympathise with us in our sufferings. Who knows? Well, we're going we're gonna to dig deeper into this in coming months. But let me close now with some prayer. And then we'll finish the service. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who is able to sympathise with every one of our sufferings, because he too was tested by grief all the way to breaking point and yet without sin. We thank you that you understand then our sorrows, that you draw near to us in them, that you welcome our tears and our cries of grief. Father, we pray that you'd help us to fear you rightly, to draw close to you by faith, especially in our darkest days. And we pray, Lord, we dearly pray that the world around us might see that you are glorious and good in the way that we suffer, in the way that we handle it. We ask this in your good name. Amen.